Ten years ago now, my mom gave Sophia a gift bag for Easter. You know, one of those bags where it's filled with all kinds of candy, like chocolates, jelly beans, and stickers. But there was also one of those tiny green plastic flower pots with a sealed paper packet and peat moss inside. And in that packet were four sunflower seeds. The description said, Goliath sunflowers. Now, out of those four seeds, two made it. They sprouted, and by late June, we transplanted those starts into a flower bed outside. Those two starts grew to be massive sunflowers. First came the bees, then the birds and the squirrels. Eventually, the fall winds came and finally death and decay. The giant sunflower heads had lost all their petals and every seed was gone, apparently scattered them. Uh, in fact, we have one daughter who doesn't like them at all. But uh, <laughs> No matter what you think about sunflowers personally, hold your judgment to yourself, please. It's amazing that from our four seeds, we got two plants from which we now have a small forest. Jesus spoke in parables about the gospel being sent like a seed or scattered all over the earth. And one of his most famous parables on seeds, God is the sower. The Father is the one sending the seed of the gospel so that the whole world might know the good news of the love of Jesus. Now today, followers of Jesus make up the largest single faith group in the entire world. You would never have guessed that from its beginnings. Jesus, a first-century Jew born in a small Roman-occupied town in Palestine, died by execution and was deserted by most of the people who claimed to be his followers. That's not typically how great movements in history begin. But then Jesus rose from the grave, and in his resurrection body, he appears to his friends and to his followers. He forgives those who deserted him and creates a new community. But still, we're talking about an infinitesimally small number of people, around 120 followers of Jesus in the first century. Before Jesus ascended, he tells this small group of 120 men and women to wait in Jerusalem. He says, power from on high, the Holy Spirit, is going to come upon you. And once you are empowered with this gift of the, of the life of God in you, I'm going to send you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem, in Samaria, the area north of Jerusalem and Judea, and the entire known world at the time. So the Holy Spirit falls on this group of people at Pentecost. Peter preaches to his Jewish siblings and people say, what do we do? How do we follow this Jesus? He says, repent, be baptized, and the Spirit will come upon you. As their numbers grew, this small group became a larger and larger group, and they needed more than just like family meals and dinners. They needed some administration to kind of help, help feed them and to nourish them and to structure them. And so they, they chose seven men who they called deacons. Stephen was one of these seven men. And these seven men tended to the people, made sure that the widows and the, the elders were fed, the shut-ins, so that the apostles can continue on with their teaching. We learned about Stephen last Sunday. If you missed that Sunday, Stephen was falsely accused by a, a synagogue in Jerusalem. And the synagogue was unique in that it was called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And that means that they weren't ethnic Jews that were accusing Stephen, they were Greek Jews. 
accusing Stephen because that's what Stephen was. He was one of these Greek converts to Judaism. And they falsely accused him of teaching against the law of Moses and teaching against the temple. And when he tried to defend himself and tell them what he was all about, they dragged him as an angry mob out into the outskirts of the city and they threw rocks at him until he died. And that's where we get to pick up the story. Today, in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Again, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what he said, what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out from them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. Men and women were being baptized, and even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this authority as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, uh, if possible, that the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are full of gall and bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Lord, Thank you for this word uh, handed down to us through the ages. Thank you for this great work of you pressing into a new people and a new culture uh, through the power of your word and through the power of human witness. Lord, help us as we understand more about your servant Philip and the power of your spirit. Help us, Lord, to see where it is you're calling us into this world. Amen. You may be seated.
if you consider my opening illustration about the sunflowers and then think, I see the sermon title on the bulletin called Scattered or Sent, it could be tempting to read a story like this one and to say, the Lord used this great persecution in the early church to send this Jerusalem church out into the world so that the gospel would be spread. It's tempting to just want to jump there and to say that. But I want to say, even if that were 100% true or partially true, it would be very lazy of us just to jump there really quickly. We have to remember that when we're reading these stories about a guy named Philip or Stephen, we're reading about actual people who really lived, who happened to be in Christ, our brothers in Christ. Now I realize that when, and I do this myself all the time, when I'm reading Bible stories, it seems like almost so far removed in time and culture that it's almost unreal. Right? So let's consider a story from May 22nd, 2019. That's less than one year ago. And this was a headline in one of the Covenant uh, publications, the Covenant Companion. It's about a, a pastor in India of a Covenant church. Pastor Nandu Tadoka was praying for his attackers shortly before he died last month. The 58-year-old Hindustani Covenant church pastor was assaulted on April 24th, 2019 by religious extremists while he was walking home from preaching in one of the 10 villages he served. Despite suffering severe internal injuries, he was able to walk to a hospital where he died several days later. When his treatment was going on in the hospital, one witness said, even at that time he was praying for for his people. HCC leaders said in a statement, He was praying for the people who beat him up, who injured him. He was truly reflecting the attitude of Jesus Christ and forgave those people who took his life away. Nandu was known as the barefoot preacher, a pastor to many of the area villages. He was instrumental in bringing uh, uh, hundreds of people to Christ, and many of them would walk eight to ten miles to church each week. His attitude toward his attackers has greatly influenced the movement, the denomination in that area of India. So it says here that HCC, the church that he was the pastor of, has decided not to hate these people, but to love them and to start some social development work in this village to show Christ's love for them and to give peace to Pastor Nandu's soul, denominational leaders said. He's survived by a wife and five daughters. Take it one step closer to home, which is a little bit morbid, but imagine I'm walking home. You know my wife and three daughters, and I'm beat up and killed. How would we respond as a community? How would we feel about that? I understand that this Hindustani covenant church was galvanized after the tragic death of their pastor, They are actually stronger today in their faith and more united in mission, but make no mistake about it. It was not God who killed their pastor. It was people influenced by evil who killed their pastor. And make no mistake about it, Stephen was a man who loved and served people. He was a man transformed by Jesus and was sharing the good news to others. And he was also dragged out by a mob and murdered 
by people who threw rocks at him until he died. That isn't God causing that to happen so that the gospel could go out. It's important for us to sit with that for a minute. Stephen wasn't just a follower of Jesus who got killed for his faith. He was a non-Israelite, native Greek speaker in a dominantly Jewish, Hebrew-speaking community. This initial persecution seems to have been more than theologically motivated. It was culturally and ethnically motivated. We read in Acts 8.1 that the apostles stayed back in Jerusalem. Well, why weren't the apostles in any immediate danger? Why didn't they have to leave Jerusalem? Well, most likely because they were Jewish of heritage, that they spoke great Hebrew. But people like Stephen, ethnic Greeks, they weren't so privileged. And Philip is very much in that camp. He is in danger. Think about, just even if you don't know a whole lot about trauma, think about what you do know about trauma, like when you have major stressors in your life. And then consider Philip's situation for a minute. He's just watched his friend and partner in ministry murdered. And now he has to flee his home because he's no longer safe to live where he was ministering before. Philip ends up going to Samaria probably because it's safer for non-ethnic Israelites like he was and because in urban centers in Samaria, they were sufficiently Hellenized. That means their mother tongue at this time was already Greek. And so Philip could go to one of these places and not stand out as a non-Jew and he could speak his mother tongue in a pluralized Samaritan city. So here you have this traumatized man in a foreign land, basically on the run. Now, understanding that context just a little bit helps us marvel all the more that Philip didn't just run to a Samaritan city and hide, like I would be tempted to do, right? But what does he do when he gets there? He begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus. That's amazing. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the disciples that they would be filled with the Spirit and that they would become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth. We'll get there later on in the book of Acts. I've already said that I don't think God caused what happened to Stephen to, to go down, but I think that God can use that opportunity, that when Philip is sent out, he's scattered out, he's able to now proclaim the gospel in Samaria. I think Philip was scattered by the evil of the world. Acts 8.4 says those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, what's interesting is that the Greek word behind the word scattered is diasporantes. That's where we get the word diaspora, you know what a diaspora is, right? It's the forced dispersal of a people. It's not a good thing. You're forced out of your homeland to go f set up shops somewhere else. Philip was scattered by the world. It wasn't a good thing. He was scattered. He was sent out. He was not safe in the place he was living. But because of his attitude and his devotion to Jesus and his devotion to the mission of Jesus, Philip actually saw himself as sent. 
He was scattered and he was sent. This isn't a case of foolishly looking at evil and seeing good. We all know people like that who are always saying, oh, it's all good. It's, those people usually aren't in touch with reality when bad things are happening. It's a defense mechanism. Like, I don't think that that's what Philip is doing. This is a case of a man who is a refugee and an evangelist. They're not mutually exclusive. Philip, a native Greek speaker, a man who understood the lingo and the worldview of Hellenized urban people, may have been uprooted from Jerusalem, the land where he came to faith, but he was actually at home culturally where he ended up settling in urban Samaria. Also, there's no way that Peter or John could have been at home in this urban center of Samaria. In the gospel accounts, these two guys are actually made fun of for their backwoods, deeply Hebrew accents, you know what I mean, like Galilean accents. They would not have made it uh, as thought leaders in urban Samaria. Philip may be in Samaria due to being scattered by evil, but he chooses to see himself as sent because he's not of this world, he was of Christ. If you think about it, if you're here this evening and maybe you've been down the road a little bit of following Jesus and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are sent. You are sent, sent into the world to reflect the goodness of the kingdom of God, sent into the world to share the good news that Jesus reigns and that he's good and that he actually loves you and loves other people. Philip, the Hellenized one, speaks the language of Hellenized Samaria. He fits the culture. He gets it. And as I look out on this room and consider many of you who I know well and some who I'm getting to know well, I'm asking myself, what languages and cultures are represented in this room? What grammar do you speak in the community? There's some of you I know who are gamers, like hardcore gamers. Greg, what's up? Walk by that, that dark tower and there's Greg in there playing with a bunch of dudes that I have no contact with. That Greg speaks their language, right? We have people who are doctors and nurses. I don't speak doctor nurse. Well, I speak nurse, but my mom's a nurse, my brother's a nurse, my sister's a nurse. I speak a little nurse. <laughs> when it boils and stuff, I'll talk about that. No, it's okay. Welders. I don't speak welder. Right? I don't speak landscape. Well, I used to do landscaping. Um, there's this, what, what is your thing? Uh, mountain biking. Are you urban? Are you country? Are you a dog person? We're, we're becoming, we're, I don't think I'll ever be a dog person, but we have a dog now. So I'm meeting people with the dog. I'm still not a dog person. I love our dog. Don't love your, I don't necessarily love your dog. Uh, are, are you a parent? Are, are you single? Uh, are you married? Are you married without kids? Uh, are you, there's all kinds of, of, of things that you are involved in because of your vocation and because of your history. And you're sent into a world that I can't necessarily always fit in, that, that your neighbor around you can't necessarily always fit in. Where are you sent? What unique experiences and language and grammar do you speak that others might not, that makes you unique? Some of you might feel, hey, you are in your sweet spot. I'm so thankful um, when you find your sweet spot, you're like, I am in the job that I was made for, or I am in the relationship I was made for, I am in the time in my life I was made for. Andy's recently retired, just went skiing all over the place. That's, I was made for that too, brother. I, some, no. uh, 
but some of you are in the sweet spot, and that is, that is awesome. You can ask yourself, I feel sent. I definitely feel sent. How, how can I How can I share Christ in my words and deeds where I'm at? And then others of you I know are feeling scattered right now. Like scatterbrained, yeah, I get that. But like scattered in like this isn't the job for me, the end all be all. Or this isn't the point of life I want to stay in. Life's really hard right now. And it's important for us to know when we look at Philip that you don't need to feel like you're in your sweet spot to be sent. That there's a sentness even in your scatteredness. And a lot of the people that I come across, they don't care how put together I am. They don't care, my non-Christian friends don't care necessarily how much I know about, about the Bible or that I took Greek. You know what they care about? When I'm vulnerable, when I need help, there's a, a vulnerability that invites people in. And so sometimes in our scattered position, that's when we make the deepest connections with other people. I just want you to consider that. I think too often in the church, this is the message we hear, you've got to get all your logic straight, get your theology straight, get your life straight, and then you'll be a shining beacon to the world that's all messed up. We're all messed up all the time. We're all pretty scattered. And it's, it's in the midst of that scatteredness that we're also sent. And we see Philip doing that. And I think there's gospel in the sense that God sends us even in our scatteredness, because it means that Jesus cares about people. It means Jesus loves all kinds of people, and that's what we find in the story, and it's what we find in so many others. Jesus is already at work in the mission field that he sends us into. Like, Philip is scattered. He's pushed out of Jerusalem. He faithfully shares the gospel of Jesus, and he is empowered to do these signs and wonders, making sick people whole and casting out demons and all this stuff. All these spectacular signs and wonders are seen and most often seen when the gospel goes out to a new culture or a new group of people for the first time. To this day, we hear not very often of signs and wonders in Bellingham, Washington, but I hear it on a monthly basis, signs and wonders taking place in Southeast Asia and India and very much so in Egypt, in Iran, and Iraq. I hear of dreams and visions. I hear of healings. I hear of things going on because the gospel is breaking into places that are supposedly closed and God loves a challenge. And in the, the passages in Acts, we see this happening all over the time. Signs and wonders breaking out into Samaria and when they go to Ephesus and we go to all of these places that don't have a stronghold of, of Christianity. But let's not forget that Jesus has already set a precedent for the gospel going out past Israel and particularly into Samaria. David did an amazing job reading John chapter four earlier. And in that passage, Jesus decides to travel through Samaria to get to where he was going in North Israel. And he shows his love for the Samaritans when he engages with this woman in a conversation at a well. And you have to appreciate that the Samaritans were seen as fundamentally unclean. Just their life being around you was supposedly unclean. Like one guy even wrote like, it's better for your daughter to marry a swine than interact with, than have dinner with a Samaritan. I mean, it's it's actually quite racist, some of the things that you read in uh, these ancient writings. And the Samaritans said the same things about the Jews, so it wasn't just like one. Um, But I mean, the Samaritans and Jews, even at the time that uh, the first century, a thousand years 
of history of animosity already between them. And this is deep-seated stuff. The Samaritans even built a rival, a rival temple. So the Jews had theirs in, in Jerusalem. The Samaritans had one at Mount Gerizim. Uh, and they only followed the first five books of the Bible, whereas you know, the Jewish people uh, had all the way through the prophets. And even those five books of the Bible were kind of modified in a special way. So, the stereotype of a Samaritan person is a person who is notorious for moral compromise, just like the woman Jesus talks to at the well. She's a woman who's been with five different husbands, uh, pretty scandalous really in any culture, but especially in a very, very conservative ancient culture, and she's not married to the man she's with now, which implies that maybe he is married at the time. Jesus does two things that most of us aren't very good at doing all the time. First of all, he reaches out with God's love to someone who many would write off as too far gone. I think it's one thing to imagine the woman at the well being forgiven personally by Jesus. Like, come and confess your sin and repent. Like, I can imagine that happening and God forgiving her, right? Like, because that's what we do in our little prayer closets all the time. It's another step that's infinitely further to imagine this woman being then accepted into an entire community full of their stereotypes and the things that they've heard about her and things like that. And and Jesus is breaking down that relationship wall in talking to her. But this is the second thing we don't typically do very well, at least on an individual basis. Um, Jesus didn't just hang out with the woman at the well. That's a fallacy I hear a lot on social media. Um, People usually who aren't followers of Jesus, say things like, you know, Jesus would be hanging out with the terrorists, or Jesus would be hanging out with the drug addicts, or Jesus would be hanging out with fill-in-the-blank of the group of people you're trying to communicate about. And absolutely, Jesus would be hanging out with them, because he would hang out with anybody. And I believe he is hanging out with everybody, by the way. That Jesus is already on the scene by the time you and I show up. But Jesus also doesn't shy away from speaking the truth to the woman at the well. And you know what? She doesn't run away. She doesn't yell at him. She, he actually confronts her. I didn't realize this till David read it. He, I knew about it when he, she confronts him morally with her husbands, but then she confronts him, or he confronts her theologically. Like, he actually says, well, you Samaritans, don't know who you worship, basically, but we Jews do, for salvation comes from the Jews. I'm like, that's pretty bold. I'm not sure I would go there with someone, but I'm not Jesus, so. But, but Jesus, you know, he cares about the whole person, and so he cares about relating to her, and he cares about t- sharing the truth with her, and I, I just think that's beautiful, and that's not something I do very well. So Jesus is already going ahead of us, In the story of the woman at the well, Jesus tells his disciples, the harvest is ripe. Someone else has labored in the field, but now you're here and the harvest is ready. What good news. Did you know that that means there are people in our lives who are on a precipice and God is already at work in their lives. 
All they might need is for you to put words to what's going on in their life. All they might need is someone to show them a way, maybe with words, maybe with example, maybe a combo of both. In my experience, the Spirit usually leads you and prompts you to know. To know. Now, while Philip is performing signs of the gospel and declaring the good news of Jesus, he's confronted by this guy named Simon Magus. Simon was a magician who called himself the great power of God. And in ancient Near Eastern lingo, he was claiming to be a manifestation of a number of Greek gods into one person. His title, Magus, maybe you caught the connection there, is from the same root as magi. Heard that before, right? Matthew chapter 2, the Magi from the East, these magicians. Simon, like the woman at the well, is a caricature of Samaritans. He's the type of person that a Jew might stereotypically think all Samaritans were like. He has a Palestinian first name, Simon, but he's compromised by pluralism, a Greek speaker and a dabbler in magic, claiming allegiance to other gods while maintaining some loose connection to the Torah or some Samaritan version of the Torah. I mean, this is what a Jewish person would think is the worst of all Samaritans. Simon is the New Age yoga instructor in Northern California before that was a thing, right? And he is the last guy that a first century Jewish person Christian would think that God would be interested in. He's the one you want your daughters to stay away from. He's not the guy that you want to be hanging around. And yet, he responds to the message of Jesus, and he's baptized. Simon was a powerful magician, but when he saw the power of God through Philip, he was mesmerized. He was amazed, the scripture says. And then something interesting happens. And this is where the story goes sideways a lot of times. I'm going to try and navigate these waters. Peter and John hear about the gospel taking root up in Samaria. Okay? And they come to check things out. Peter and John were both Jewish Christians who had likely grown up with prejudices against the Samaritans. In fact, back in the Gospel of Luke, you may remember a certain time when the Samaritans didn't show Jesus and his disciples hospitality. And John and his brother James say, hey, Lord, want us to call down thunder and lightning on these guys? And Jesus is like, you don't even know what spirit you're of. What am I going to do with you guys? And he nicknamed them sons of thunder. Maybe you remember that? How cool now that John is one of the two coming to inspect the gospel coming to Samaria. When the gospel begins to take root, And when they saw with their own eyes Jesus transforming lives of Samaritans, they were in approval, and they came to check it out. In an interesting turn of events, we hear that the Samaritans didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they were baptized into the name of Jesus, and so the apostles came to lay hands on them so that the Spirit would fall upon them. Now, this event and this passage has caused all kinds of controversy throughout the years in the church. To this day, certain sects of Christianity teach a two-stage conversion based on this proof text and a few others. They claim that Christians are baptized into Christ 
And then they need a second baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it's not just Pentecostals, extreme Pentecostals, but it's also certain groups in the Catholic Church that, that also see that same kind of two-stage salvation. Now, here's why I think that's a problem. I don't think that's what this text is about. But I also know that I need to address it a little bit, so I'm going to do that quickly. First of all, consider that in the New Testament, we most often see Acts 2, 38, as the norm for people coming to faith. They repent, are baptized into Christ, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Consider this, that theologically, you know, we sang our very first song in the main set today was uh, the Trinity song. Holy Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. Okay, you can't have Jesus and not have the Spirit. That would be like tritheism, like you're separate. You can't have Jesus. You can't have the Father without the Son and the Spirit. You can't have the Son without the Spirit and the Father. You can't have the Spirit without Jesus and the Father. They're three, they're one, okay? Uh, but we do see occasions, exceptional occasions, where we have an apparent two-stage event involving the Holy Spirit. And I'll say three things quickly about this. First, our formulas... Our theologies about baptism in the Spirit are only descriptive. This isn't a formula of baptism as if the Spirit would fall on them if they had been baptized differently, like into the triune name instead of just the name of Jesus or something. The biblical writers can only report what the Spirit did, what the Spirit does. They cannot dictate what the Spirit must do. The Spirit is squarely like that, and I really appreciate that, that the Spirit blows when and where and how the Spirit wants to. And no amount of our theologizing or trying to lock the Holy Spirit, which means holy wind, can you catch the wind? No. That's a great metaphor. Like, we can't box up the Holy Spirit and say this one formula is the way the Spirit works. So that's the first thing, is that I would be very cautious in just trying to say too definitively how everything works. Second, that being said, this two-stage event is described as exceptional, not the norm. In verse 16, Luke needs to mention that the Samaritans didn't receive the Spirit at baptism, which makes it weird, otherwise he wouldn't need to mention that they didn't receive the Spirit of baptism. This is kind of implicit logic. Okay. Third, we almost always see exceptional or out-of-the-ordinary conversions or manifestations of the Spirit when the gospel goes out to a new people for the first time. So part of the importance, part of the point of this is that Peter and John are bearing witness to the conversion and to the gifting of the Spirit for the Samaritans. They're saying that the Samaritans are like legit brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, they're reporting back to the Jerusalem church, a people that, like it or not, had a lot of prejudices against the Samaritans, who could see them as second-class citizens or doubt their conversion in the first place. And by Peter and John, John, one of the sons of thunder, coming and saying, no, this is real. We saw the Spirit manifested. They're saying, you can't treat them any differently. They are now in the family of God. Okay. In the end, the magician Simon slips back into his old way of thinking. Old habits are hard to break. Anyone ever try and change? Any Christians ever try and change? 
Does it make you any less Christian if you fail when you try and change? I'm just asking. I hope not. But this guy, Simon, slips back into old habits. He sees the manifestations of the Spirit, and he assumes that the apostles not only have the power to gift the Spirit to whomever they want, they don't, but they can also somehow give him that power, they can't, and that they could somehow buy that power, he couldn't. And so we're left with this ambiguity at the end of the passage. Peter tells Simon, please pray, or pray to the Lord that you might be forgiven, right? And so Simon asks Peter and John to pray on his behalf. And scholars have gone round and round, and you can read all of their crazy arguments. Um, was Simon's conversion authentic? Was it from the heart? Was he asking them to pray because you want people with supposed authority to God to pray? That might be a better prayer. Or did he ask them to pray because he was too lazy to pray for himself? Or did he ask them to pray because he didn't have an authentic relationship with Jesus? And the very fact that I'm just going on about not knowing what his heart was is just, just pause for a minute. You and I should not be wasting time judging this man's relationship with Jesus. That's not our job, and that's not the point of the story. As far as we know, Simon Magus lived some time after this event. He did not die like Ananias and Sapphira, which should give us pause and say, maybe God is doing something longer term with this man. And isn't discipleship, isn't it a process more than it is a, a single event? And isn't that good news for you and me? Because I've been at this a while, and I sure have a lot more growing to do. And I am thankful for God's patience with me. And I know he's patient with you. The story, I don't think, is, meant to, is not meant to spark theological debate. It is meant to say, wherever you are, even if you feel scattered, you are sent. Sent to a place and to a people where God is already working, sent to a place and a people that God already loves. And I know that some of you, I know we don't have a lot of time, I know some of you are in some really hard workplaces. I used to be in the Coast Guard. I know about hard workplaces. I know about, um, I know about rough language and, and you, I know about, I know about it. And I just want to remind you as I remind myself that the people that you're around God is already loving them. And he's already with them. Okay. So pray. If there's any call in this, pray that the Holy Spirit will empower you to fill you and me with love for others and love for Jesus. Pray that by the power of the Spirit, you could receive even more of the love of Jesus for yourself. The Lord of the universe, Jesus the Christ, has come. He's reaching out to me. He's reaching out to you. He knows the deep places of my heart and your heart, and he loves me. Can I receive him? And he knows our neighbors, and he loves them. Will I see myself? Will you see yourself as sent for their sake? Would you pray with me? Patient, loving God, Thank you for this story. Thank you for your servant, Philip, who in a situation that would 
just break so many of us. He was able to leverage his new place in his diaspora to see himself as sent, as someone who has something to share, not because he has it all together, not because he would be viewed as successful in the world, but because he knew the love of Jesus. I pray that myself and my sisters and brothers and I would know your love, Jesus, more deeply than we had before. And I pray for opportunities, for an opening of our eyes, for a motivation in our heart to see us as sent. I pray for uh, creativity and imagination for each of us to reimagine uh, our workplaces, our social places, our neighborhoods as places where we're sent and help us to see how we can serve and share your love with others. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.